Hey there, welcome to the Echo Podcast, where we discuss how our hearts and minds can be an echo of God's heart and mind and what that even means in this world. We're Pastor Dan Sinkhorn and Adrian Cherulo from Shiloh Church of Jasper, Indiana. Pastor Dan is our pastor, and I, Adrian, am the youth leader. Each episode will consist of us talking about different topics and ideals in the Christian faith, inspired from the previous Sunday sermon. We're going pulpit to podcast. We hope you find our conversation enriching, inspiring, and entertaining. In this week's episode, we will be talking about Mary, mother of Jesus. And I think it's important to say mother of Jesus because there are so many Marys in the Bible. There are a lot. It's true. So Mary, mother of Jesus, what an amazing woman. Yes. Um, You talked about her on Sunday, and I wasn't there, but I loved listening to you talk about her. Um, And I think that I just like to start with the first time we meet Mary in the Bible. Mm -hmm. It's when she's approached by the angel Gabriel, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know of any other time before that. So we'll go with that as being the first one. Um, I think that's true. Um, There, yeah. There's no mention of her other than in lineages, but yeah. Yeah. So at this point in time, Mary is probably 13, 14 years old. And she's a teenager. She's, what is that, an eighth grader? Yeah. Ish? Yeah. Yeah. And she's approached by this angel, right? And we all know the story. I mean, even kids, probably a four-year-old knows the story, but... Um, you know, I'm going to correct you on that. Uh, I say correct you like I know everything, but sure, I don't agree that that's true anymore. Um, well, yeah. I have said many times in the pulpit over the last 27 years, well, here's a story I'm sure you're all familiar with. And in the last few years, it's occurred to me that that's probably not true. There are a lot of people who listen to us. It's one of the reasons that I'm even more committed to reading lots of scripture um, in church, you know, because because rather than just pick a verse that I'm going to preach on, I pick enough to give you context and then I frame the story because there are people listening who are not familiar with it and they don't know the Bible says that. We were talking a minute ago before we came on um, about these sermon shots that I've been doing where, where you can watch little short videos of me in uh, Facebook and, and YouTube. And I have chosen at least a couple of them where it's just me reading the scripture. Hmm. And the reason I decided to do it was because there's people that are flipping through Facebook and, and YouTube that might stop and listen because they're curious about what they're hearing and they don't know that it comes from the Bible. So anyway. I just, anymore, I don't think we can take it for granted that people are universally familiar. I saw something posted on Facebook. I don't want to sidetrack us. You keep me back on our target here. But but I just saw something on Facebook from a very precious friend from, from Israel that said, you know, uh, in a few weeks, people all over the world are going to celebrate the birth of a Jewish boy 2,000 years ago, even though those same people are protesting that Israel hasn't been in the land until 1948. You know, hmm. like just pointing out the contradiction that, that to say that Israel occupies the land unlawfully 
and that you know they've they've displaced the native people is not correct not unless you want to go all the way back to the exodus and in the exodus it's true israel left egypt and displaced the residents of what they called the promised land but actually they started out there before the exodus so hmm. mm. <laughs> and and uh and the people they displaced for the most part were not natural so anyway i didn't want to go off on that tangent but but i just think it's really interesting to to keep things in perspective we have to understand that there are people all over the world who don't understand that the jesus of christianity is a jew born to a jewish couple born in the context and placement of a jewish nation that was under occupation itself for about 300 years um he was and is a product of the jewish religious culture albeit a culture that he came to set right because they had distorted it and misused its tenets in a way that needed to be corrected but at the end of the day we can't disassociate ourselves as christians from the jewish story we cannot disconnect ourselves from who Jews are and our spiritual, figurative, and literal relationship to them. So if you call yourself a Christian, truly call yourself a Christian, you are essentially claiming that you're both coming from the same Heavenly Father, but you have a different mother, so to speak. You're like, you're like step-siblings. You know, that's what we are to the Jews. They are people of the Father, the same one Jesus called Father, therefore our Heavenly Father. But we stem our Christian story from Jesus, who was born of Mary and the Heavenly Father, and they stem their story from an Abrahamic covenant and a Mosaic covenant. So in effect, their mother and our mother are different, but we have the same father. Hmm. But that makes it more important than ever for Christians to understand that we need to stand with Israel. It isn't a political decision to stand with them. And there are people who are saying that the Bible says you should pray for peace in Jerusalem and God will bless you for it. But honestly, if I were God and you said, well, I'm only praying for Jerusalem because I know you'll bless me if I do, then you kind of miss the point. <laughs> yeah. You know. Kind of goes back to the not using God as a cosmic vending machine right. sort of thing. Right. Idea. Yeah. So, boy, did I go off on a tangent, but not necessarily because we're talking about Mary. And, and we're talking Jewish about... A Jewish maiden who gave birth to the Son of God. Yeah. And who was the first Christian. Right. Mary was the first Christian. She was the first person to say yes to Jesus. Yeah. And I guess that's where the story begins and definitely don't want to assume that everyone knows the story. Um, so I guess, yeah, 
let's start there. So Mary is in like a pasture somewhere, right? I guess. It doesn't really say. Doesn't really say. Yeah, so she's somewhere, but she's a teenager. She's like 13 or 14. Yeah. And all of a sudden, this massive angel appears to her. This angelic being, Gabriel. Mm-hmm. And he calls her by name and he says, Mary. I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to be Mary in this situation. As a 13-year-old, you don't know a whole lot, but I might know an angel if I saw one. And so she has her undivided attention, right? Mm. And this angel says, um, Mary, you're going to bear a son. You're going to have a son and you're going to name him Jesus. And she says, well, but how can this be? Because I'm a virgin. So at this point, she's engaged to Joseph, ba- mm-hmm. basically, in today's terms. She's betrothed to him, but they haven't been married yet. And so she... I guess is still living with her parents. I was looking that up probably Mm -hmm. in their culture. She was still living with her parents and they had not consummated the marriage yet because they were not married yet. Right. And in that culture, the punishment for bearing a child out uh, aside from being married. So out of um, wedlock, I guess was being stoned to death. Yeah. They would literally take the, teenager or the woman into a courtyard and stone her to death yeah and so totally fair of her to say well how can this be i'm a virgin like i you know i I don't understand and then the angel says um he answers her question basically the holy spirit will come upon you and deliver you a son and she says okay i'm a servant of the lord let it be done according to what you say And so Mary has such a willingness to serve the Lord before she even really knew him as we know him as Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that makes her a fantastic version or a fantastic example, I guess, of what it means to be a Christian. She had this willingness despite all of these circumstances that she knew that she would be facing I mean, within their Jewish law at that time, Joseph, if it would have been expected for him to say, okay, you're going to be stoned to death and I'm going to watch. Basically, it was within his right. And so I just think pushing, putting it into that perspective is important in understanding the pure willingness of Mary and the pure heart of her. Um, yeah, I mean, she has this sort of natural sanctification about her. Um, which, which we'll get to what that is and what that isn't, I'm sure. But for now, just to understand that she's extraordinary. There's no question that this is an extraordinary young woman. Um, in that culture and similar cultures, even today, um, marriage and, and, uh, betrothal are virtually the same but marriage is not marriage until the consummation and in fact i just read this recently um i just finished a really great book about martin luther and and uh consummation in the marriage bed is something that they usually have witnesses what yeah yeah and oh no that's because that is the 
definitive act that marks this marriage as uh, certified, you know, like, and, and it's usually like the best man and the maid of honor, right? Like, and, and they don't necessarily have to watch, you know, but they've got to be in the room to say, yep, that that happened, that happened, (laughs) you know, it, it definitely happened. And, and so that's an interesting thing. But the other thing that's interesting is then going back to that idea that betrothal is as legally binding as marriage, but it's not marriage until it's consummated. So even if you have a wedding ceremony, you're still not considered married until the witness consummation, you know. And, and I mean, I don't think of anything distasteful because, I mean, I'm sure there are lots of ways that that was handled with dignity. But the idea was is that nobody could deny you know, that, that this was legit. Mm-hmm. But then with that in mind, then go back to the fact that women, you know, aren't eligible for such things until they've matured properly and come of age. So one of the things that's sort of tracked and observed with interest for young women, especially is whether they have developed physically to the point of, of menstruation, that kind of thing, you know, and so they're, they're now, you know, ready for childbearing and all of that. So nobody makes them do something as a child. It, it's, you know, the, I think that's important too, because we talk about how young Mary was, but it's certain. And it's one of these things that, you know, you can't exactly point to a passage in scripture, but what you have to point to is the culture that it represents. It's certain that this was not proposed to her before she was physically ready. You know, she was mature enough as a female mm-hmm. to bear children. And so that's critical. And and the Bible tells several stories. Like Bathsheba was almost certainly when David had his little affair with Bathsheba. There's plenty of evidence that this was a girl uh, who had just come of age. She was actually in the process of her first purification bath when he observed her. And so he's like, well, David was a scoundrel at this point, And he's basically saying they don't get any fresher than that. You know? Yikes. Yeah. So he's a scoundrel. Right. Yeah. And, and it's important to recognize in the context of that story, what's really being said, which means you have to acknowledge that he's really, really being a scoundrel here. And then he even works it out so that her husband can get killed on the battlefield. I mean, because his his scandal wasn't bad enough. So understand then the correlation in Jewish culture and in that society of that time in general and realize that, that, that this is a major scandal that Mary is openly embracing. A major scandal. Because it's not that different from what happened to Bathsheba in the minds of the people, mm-hmm. you know, and the only thing that they want worse than her blood is his blood, whoever he is, you know, yeah. and generally the men were older than the women. Joseph appears to have been older than Mary because there's indications that are pretty undeniable that he wasn't around when Jesus was an adult. An adult. Mm-hmm. And so we get from that, that, you know, he must have passed away before Jesus 
was on the cross because otherwise he wouldn't have said to John, I need you to take care of my mom, you know. Right. So all that being said, you know, you kind of have this picture in your mind now of how this went down. And her willingness is is uncanny. It's incredible. And she's smart enough to know, you know, again, you're a young woman. You, you know, there are things that you say to each other and things your moms say to you and your aunts or whoever about what it means to be a woman now. You know, mm-hmm. she got told the same things. She understood. And there was no question in her mind what she was saying yes to. Albeit from a childlike point of view, because she may have been physically mature, but she was still young. And then you finally, the other observation I make, because because this is what my friend Frank Viola calls using your sanctified imagination, right? So the other thing you could add into this story is, is to keep in mind that people tended to do more at younger ages in those days. You know, um, people who still live at home with their parents and haven't launched at 30 or something, that would have been unheard of in those days, you know. Mm-hmm. By the time a kid was old enough to reproduce, they were old enough to produce something, sure. right? Yeah. If you were old enough to reproduce and you were old enough to have a job and, and you were old enough to be doing something productive. And so you have to also kind of put that in perspective too. If Joseph was older than her, she might've been 14 and he might've been 21. You know, we're not talking about a vast difference. We're not talking about some old man who married teenagers that, Granted, we might think that's scandalous, but putting it in context makes it not so bad, really. Mm-hmm. So that's the person we're talking about. And the other thing that I think to keep in mind about her, and I mentioned it as sanctification earlier, is, is this is a really devout young woman. She must be, or she would not have embraced this message you know, she says, you, you know, okay, I'm talking to an angel. Like, like that in itself is remarkable because she's accepted that. You know, this, yeah. this heavenly being materializes in front of her and starts talking to her. And she goes, okay, that's cool. I'm talking to an angel. Now what? You know, I mean, think about it. It's like, like who believes that? Who who accepts that right away if they're not conditioned to accept an, a visit from an angel? Yeah. In a manner of speaking, I'm sure it didn't happen every day, but, you know, something in her nature said, all right, didn't see that coming, but I, I'll take it. You know, I'll, what do you got on your mind here, Gabe? What do you want to tell me? You know? Yeah, and she must have had a foundation of who God is yeah. and an understanding of that because she has this innate trust yeah. that God is going to take care of her um, despite the circumstances of the society she was living in. She just said, okay, I'll do it. Yeah. I- I'm your servant. Yeah. So she must have had some sort of education. I mean, she probably, I don't know if she could read or not, but... well. <laughs> That's an interesting observation, and, and it would be an opportunity for me to go off on a tangent, and I won't. But, you know, women were probably not expected to get an education, but they weren't prohibited from it. 
It wasn't as though they weren't allowed to. Um, they just weren't expected to in the same sense. But everybody was expected to know the tenets of the faith. So what was an education in those days? Well, in those days, boys went through their bar mitzvah and one of the primary par uh, parts of the bar mitzvah ceremony is them reading from the Torah, meaning they know how to read, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And at the time, the girls weren't required to do that necessarily, but they were expected to attend synagogue. There were sections in the synagogue for women and sections for men. So obviously that was all part of it. And synagogue is a word, well, that's another rambling aside that I can't afford to go on. But, but anyway, the idea is that there was room for women in the religious culture and that women were expected to be devout and faithful and they were expected to have a religious spiritual life of their own but they weren't held to the same standards as men and so mary could have been from a family that gave her access to an extensive spiritual and religious knowledge don't know for sure, but the one thing we do know is, is that God saw her and had really good vibes about her, you know, just looked at her and said, this one's a winner. This one's a winner. And, you know, because see, I, I don't know that we knew when we sat down to talk where we were going to go with this, but I'm beginning to get a sense of direction. And the, and the thing I'm really picking up on is, is that first we celebrate everything she was and is. Yeah because she is remarkable and whatever happens let us not be accused of not giving her what's due her on the other hand we may get to a point before we're done where we're talking about some of the things that some people believe that we don't necessarily find ourselves able to support but i cannot overstate what a remarkable person she was how really worthy of our admiration she is because this is an incredible person god looked at her and said this one can bear my son mm -hmm. what an enormous responsibility more than she knew and and i'm jumping ahead in the story a little bit but i don't think very far because i think once all this went down the star of bethlehem appeared and my personal take on the star of Bethlehem is that it's not a star, it's a hole in the fabric of space time. And that heaven has got someone at heaven's peephole keeping an eye on her constantly, mm. right? Like, like that's what I think is happening because the Bible describes this thing as always being where the baby is. And that's how they know to follow it. And and they, they can't quantify it in the sense that it's far distant and outside our atmosphere or whatever. It's just always there. And it's always illuminating the presence of Jesus. And so, in fact, it's part of the reason Renaissance painters will paint people with halos because there's a sense that they're backlit by, you know, a little extra, you know, a little thin spot in the veneer of time and space and light is backlighting them somehow. But 
But at the end of the day, I'm personally convinced that every appearance of bright shining light that people mistake for stars or burning bushes or whatever is actually an opening between this bubble we live in and the reality that is God's domain outside of this. And with that in mind, I think it was probably pretty soon after Jesus was conceived that there was always a star nearby this or this bright shining light because it's like this is a vulnerable, dangerous time for God's plan and the enemy is aware. Mm -hmm. And the enemy wants to get Jesus. Look at some of the things that happen in Jesus's life, you know, the being lost in the city, uh, being, you know, unbelievable, terrifying storm comes up while he's out in the middle of the lake and even the seasoned veteran sailors are terrified. Like, I mean, the devil wants to stop this plan. And so I think from the moment she says, yes, all of heaven has her under a microscope. And what, a, what an amazing responsibility. You know, again, I, I, my point in this case is not so much to sell my vision of the metaphysics of things, but to, to, to acknowledge the fact that not only is she remarkable in God's eyes, but all of heaven is watching her progress. You know? Yeah, I love I mean, that perspective. That yeah, is so cool. You know? Huh, to think of the star like that. Yeah. You know, I've thought before, what would it be like to, to have been in that star? Like if the star could tell its story, you know, what would that be? And I think that's a fun idea to entertain. Um, but this theme of light is so prevalent throughout the entire Bible. Um, where there is light, there is God. Where there is darkness, there is the devil or the evil one, you know. Um, it reminds me of this video I saw on Facebook just a few days ago. And it said... Any time or every time that during conception, when the sperm enters the egg, there is a flash of light. Hmm. And I'd never learned that before in all of my biologies that I've had to take. But there was a video. That's fascinating. It was almost like it was under a microscope, like you're talking about. And it had this, this image of an egg and the sperm swimming into it. And then there's this burst of light. And it's one of these, it's, it was so cool to see. And they played it several times. For as long as I can remember, they refer to that as the spark of life. Yeah. You know, that, that, you know, because all my life, there's been almost all my life, there's been this debate about abortion and, and what constitutes life and what you're describing to me is life. Life. Life happens. Right. And, and the God of light enters in at that moment that the soul has been generated yeah pretty awesome yes i thought that was so cool and it's it's one of those scientific things that no one can really explain Mm -hmm. which is so much more intriguing because you know a lot of people and here's another tangent we're both just on it today but um there's this idea that like science and faith cannot intersect that they're like two different things but even these most top level scientists who studied the theory of darwinism and all of these higher up things 
if they are, if they have a certain humility about them, which is another characteristic we love about Mary, but if they have a certain level of humility, they'll admit there are things that we cannot explain with science. No matter how knowledgeable we are, no matter how much our technology advances, there are certain things that we just cannot explain. You know, we've, I think we've talked about this in previous recordings, but I just have to say again that, you know, I joke about how I don't believe in atheists and people say, oh, that's really funny. But no, I really mean it. An atheist is a person who doesn't believe in any kind of supreme being or anything beyond what can be seen. And if that's true, then I should never know when I've encountered one. I mean, really, if, if I, no atheist who really is what atheists claim to be is going to go out of their way to tell me I'm wrong or that they're right. They have a religion when they start proselytizing. Why do atheists buy billboards to tell you there is no God if they're not trying to promote their own religion, which is an anti-religion or an anti-God? scientists or people who believe science is more real than matters of faith are people who can't stand the idea of you believing in something that can't be explained by science and so they are religiously devoted to defeating your ideas i mean it's just like let's get honest about what's really going on every person who says I don't believe in a creator and I don't believe in, in a created universe is entitled to say that. But as soon as they try to convince me that I'm wrong about that, then they're telling me that they have a religion too. Their religion is the anti-religion of, of my religion. Most people who are hostile towards Christian belief or other religious beliefs are people who have had a bad experience and they want revenge or retribution. And that sounds like a really broad statement, but if you ask people who spend a certain amount of their life trying to convince people of faith that they're wrong, it's because they've got a burr under their saddle about something that you believe in the system it represents. And so I would argue that the scientist, the true scientist, is a person who could become someone of faith. They just haven't seen anything yet that will convince them of it. Mm -hmm. And that a real scientist is a person who is almost certainly going to come to faith at some point. Because their science is going to prove that there's a creator. Their science is going to prove that there are things in the universe that cannot be explained except divine design. I'm not saying that that I'm not saying that in any way, except that it makes sense. You know, you, you know, it'd be kind of like somebody saying, you know, I, 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 500 years ago, somebody could say one day people will fly around in machines in the sky. And you say, that's absurd. There's never going to be anybody doing that. But what you do is you point to a bird and you go, well, if they can do it, what's to say we won't figure out how to do it too. And so you have to have at least faith in the plausibility that something right that's inconceivable right now isn't always going to be. 
you know, and that we're just too many steps away from seeing it fulfilled to be able to recognize its potential to be fulfilled. And so for a lot of Christians, there's faith that doesn't have a great deal of structure behind it, which is fine. But if you're a scientist, if you're that kind of person, if your mind's wired that way, then what's wrong with accepting where the facts lead you? You know, science at its best is a process of testing theories and figuring out what's true and what's not. It's science is about the pursuit of knowledge mm -hmm. and science produces knowledge. And there's no reason that science can't occasionally produce knowledge of God. And a true scientist would say, well, didn't see that coming, but it happened. You know, so there are a lot of people out there that are hostile and violent in their speech towards people of faith and the utter idiocy they think that is behind faith. Like, like you know, there's so many people that consider themselves more sophisticated than religious people. But they're really not. They're just practicing a different religion. And yeah. in a way, they're practicing it in a way that's more inconsistent with what they believe is true than what the Christian does. You know, they'll, they'll, they're the people who will say that we're ignorant and we are violent because we say that the Bible speaks against certain things and for certain things. And, and, uh, and yet in order to promote their religion and in order to dominate the world with their ideology, they will do things that they accuse their enemies of doing. And yet a true Christian is somebody who won't do certain things because their Lord won't let them. And it's just kind of amazing when you think about it that I don't know how come I went off on that, but well, you went first. It's yeah, your fault. I went first. I'll take the blame. No. <laughs> um, yeah. This just reminds me of that comedian that you sent me. Was it Tim Hawkins? Yeah, Is that his name? Yeah, Tim Hawkins. He talks about how there's atheist churches popping up around the nation yeah, and singing yeah. like known Christian songs, but replacing the lyrics with like evolutionary mindset. It's hysterical. Um, but anyway. Yeah, yeah. Tim I Hawkins is pretty funny. He is. I hope that something that people can hear when they listen to our podcast, all of our tens of listeners, I hope that they hear that Christianity is intellectual. Yeah. It's not some just mindless thing where when people ask you the answer to a question, you're just like, oh, well, Bible says la, 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 so that is so, period. Like, we're not robots, right? we critically think through our faith and we ask hard questions and we use sometimes a little bit of sanctified imagination, but it's, it's founded on truth, right? I mean, that's just yeah. like anything else. That's why we call it holiness of heart and mind. Yeah. Because, because our, our brains are welcome to the faith business. And now, Having said that, I just want to say for the sake of all people who might be listening, all 11 of them, you know, we, you can have a intimate relationship with Christ, be born again in the Holy Spirit and not be 
particularly knowledgeable of the Bible or maybe someone who hasn't taken the time to carefully think through certain things. I mean, there's no requirement. It's not a prerequisite for being a Christian to be a critical thinker. But what almost invariably happens to a real devout Christian, that is to say someone who's really devoted to Christ, that's what the word devout means, out of loyalty to him and out of obedience to him, you'll become a thinker. If only so that you can see other people more clearly because what he wants you to do is love him and then love others that's it you know know him and make him known you know yeah and and so you know you're invited to attain your greatest intellectual capability and there are no failures you know everybody gets an a if they think (laughs) you know First faith, then thought. I mean, you know, it's okay. So I just happen to be somebody who really enjoys thinking way outside the box. And I don't know, I think maybe it even gives the Lord pleasure, you know, because he probably laughs at some of the crazy ideas I come up with. But at the same time, there are other people like me out there who, who need that, like, not to have faith, but to make my faith more exciting than I ever thought it could be. You know, I love believing that the star Bethlehem is a portal to heaven. I love thinking that on the night that the angel said to the shepherds, this baby's been born, that it was that same star and an angel kind of put his fingers around either side of the star and went, hey guys, you got to see this. And... You know, because it says in the Bible that the shepherds saw the heavenly host from horizon to horizon. There were millions of them, you know, and, and what a picture, right? Yeah. What a beautiful picture. And yeah, I, you know, there are people who are more pragmatic and, and uh, well, dare I say anal, who might find all of that very troubling, you know, but I don't know, come with me to my world of imagination, I found I sound like Willy Wonka, you know. Come with me, and you'll be in a world of sanctified imagination. Are there chocolate rivers? Could be. I would like that very much. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I I just I, it's fun, and and the thing is, is I don't think anybody's faith hinges on some of the stuff that I speculate about. I think the important thing to keep in mind is is that Mary had a baby who was the son of God. And God really, really appreciated her. And there's no question in my mind that she is still highly honored in heaven. You know, like, like, hey, you know. And yet my hunch is that the very nature that made her worthy of the task is still her most telling feature. You know, you'd say, I want to go see the queen of heaven. Where's Mary's throne? Well, that's not where you'll find her. You'll probably find her fixing something that's broken, caring for children, you know, giving her patience and love, 
to people who need it. You know, that's where you'll find Mary. Just like they went to the palace to find baby Jesus, but that's not where he was. He was in a manger, in a stable or a cave, more likely. Yeah. You know, and, and see, that's the thing we have to get in our heads about. Like, like this whole idea of Mary being exalted and having a crown on her head and scepters in her hands and standing on the globe and one foot on a snake's head and all of that. Yeah, I'm mocking certain imagery that I've seen in certain houses of worship. And I don't mean any disrespect by that, but it doesn't add up to the person that was worthy of the call to be the bearer of God's son. Because she says to her cousin Elizabeth, I can't understand why I've been blessed, but what I know is, is that he saw my humble condition mm. and saw me worthy. Like, like she's hum her humility is extraordinary. And that's what makes her worthy. And then somehow she's become exalted throughout history as something she would never want to be. Because it runs completely counter to who she is. Jesus had a nature that was given to him by his heavenly father because he is God in the flesh. But his flesh was nurtured by that woman and that man, Joseph. You know, his flesh was nurtured by them. He was raised in the culture and in the house of these two amazing people who both had the humility and the faith to do this unthinkably difficult thing. And that's who raised him. So no wonder he's nice. Because if the God part of him didn't make him nice, then the Mary and Joseph part of him made him nice. You know, I mean, seriously. Yeah. You know, God not only saw in those two people someone who could take responsibility for this messiah before he could be responsible for himself they saw he saw that in them but he also saw in them character traits that he wanted his son to have mm -hmm. right you know he said what kind of house do i want my boy to grow up in while he's getting ready to do his earthly mission that one i mean these are special people yeah, they're special. And like I said, they deserve our admiration and they deserve our 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 uh, envy in a way like we you know, I want to be like them. I want God to look at me and see a guy that was half as good as Joe, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, because look what he did with those two people, you know, and yeah. Uh, so, yeah. That's that's getting it right. Getting it's wrong is, I think, when we find reasons to put her. You know, one of the things I talked about in the sermon on Sunday, and and uh, I I started to say something and then failed to say it. So I want to correct that now, since this is an echo, right? Mm. Apparently, it's an echo of things that were said and not said sometimes. But I was talking about how. You know, I, I, the whole thing was about Mary being essentially, what do you call it, progenitor, I guess, of the apostolic tradition or whatever. But anyway, I, I was saying, you know, well, I've got to deal with the fact, especially living where we do and the things that many of us have in common in, in our church and our community, is, is why do some people have a higher view of Mary 
than others. And I handled that by saying, you know, here's the historical record. So, so basically, you have to understand that much of what people believe about Mary was something that came of age in the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages. And this is the period between the fall of Rome and the Renaissance. So that's why it's called the Dark Ages, because they were relatively uncivilized times where people were very tribal and where there were enemies who decided whether you were going to be conquered or not on how well you could defend yourself. So religious orders were surrounded by walls and managed by people of the religion, whether they were nuns or monks or whatever. And city-states existed where a lord or a king had basically built a castle with high walls that could be defended. And it was like a clan and a community all wrapped into one. And the people who lived outside the walls depended on the people inside the walls for safety and for trade and exchange. And the people on the inside of the walls really depended on people on the outside of the walls because they grew the food and they created the, the necessary things that you need to survive inside the walls. And so there was this understanding. And the person inside the walls with all the authority was a lord or a king or, you know, whatever. And they had this understanding that, you know, you, you trade with us, you create, you know, you, you grow things for us and you take care of making sure we're fed and we will make sure that when an enemy comes, you can come inside these walls and we'll protect you. And this was the understanding that people had about society, that your, your life depended on the people with authority inside those walls. And in, in people's minds, there's this sense that, well, God must be like that because we call Jesus Lord, we call him King. See, when we talk about Jesus as Lord in our culture, it never really dawns on us that what we're saying is, is he's my boss. He's, he's the ruler of my life. You know, we don't think of it that way, but they thought of it that way because it was a word they used all the time, you know, because they had lots of Lords. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And that's why Jesus is referred to in scripture as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. You know, it's meant to be, you know, understood that way. But we don't use that kind of language nowadays. So we don't really get what be, what we're being told is this. Look, Jesus is my president. He's my commander in chief. And oh, by the way, he's the commander in chief of all the commanders in chief. I mean, then it makes sense. So what that did was is it put average people who were not encouraged to know anything that priests couldn't tell them and priests weren't encouraged to read the bible bibles were not very common they were all hand transcribed and so a lot of times in the religious orders they were governed almost entirely by tradition because nobody had the guiding book and this this is kind of how these things went And then inside the castles, they basically would say, you know, well, go ask brother so-and-so what we're supposed to do about this religious dilemma that we're faced with, you know? And, And so there was this understanding, but what put, here's where the Mary thing comes from. 
people started listening to the religious authorities and hearing that God was unapproachable, that Jesus was a dangerous Lord because the religious authorities used their relative superior knowledge to lord it over the peasants who knew nothing. And they could just say, oh, I mean, remember, people lived to be 35 in those days, you know. And, and so the peasant hears that they're going to die, which is like, well, yeah, everybody does, you know. I mean, nobody's here very long at all. So they're living half as long as we generally do. And that's just given. And so they think a lot more about death than we do. We try to put it off and we figure we won't have to deal with it till we're in our 80s or 90s. But in their day, they were dealing with death every day. Babies died, children died, adults died. And heaven meant a lot more to them than it might to us because we think we can beat heaven somehow. And so those people would ask their religious authorities, well, what happens to me when I die? Oh, well, that's what this whole religion's about. This is your assurance that when you die, you go to heaven. And well, then they created a whole system of basically controlling people by telling them basically that how far you get depends on how you interact with the church right now. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and so they basically secularized Christianity. And they did it by not using the Bible and they did it by not using um, the Holy Spirit, so to speak. And then they did, um, they did this kind of double standard where they would say, yeah, but you can't ask for intercession, right? So. So basically what happened was is people started viewing Mary as the mother of Jesus and therefore being like the queen mum. You know what I mean? Like, like if he's the Lord and she's his mom, then she can whisper things into his ear. And so they started applying their secularized version of Christianity to this hierarchy of heaven and saying, well, you know, who's safer to talk to, the Lord or the Lord's mom? <laughs> and so this is where it began, you know. So people started asking Mary to intercede for them with Jesus, which on the surface seems pretty harmless, but it's theologically incorrect and doctrinally incorrect because the whole point of Jesus coming and dying on the cross was to intercede for us once and for all so that we had direct access to the Lord God, the Heavenly Father. Right. So they've pretty much taken all of that out of the equation when they're saying that you got to go through the layers and the layers look suspiciously like the local government and the local religious order. And in those days, in the dark ages, the religious order and the government were pretty much parallel forces operating with the same structures. Okay, so that's your foundation for how the certain traditions will pay, pray to saints and in particularly venerate Mary. But when they were beginning to lose their grip and their authority because of Reformation and things like that, 
and because um, the Renaissance also marked a time of enlightenment and a time when uh, they called it the enlightenment. And so knowledge is beginning to proliferate because printing press has become a thing. And now Bibles are being printed and, and Protestants are putting them out all over the place. So what happens is the Catholic Church, whoops, that church that really venerates Mary has put a uh, kind of put a hit out on anybody who's disrespecting their system and in, in particular Mary. So in response, the popes start issuing statements about Mary and they say, well, you see, Mary's mother, Anne, had an immaculate conception, which is not to be confused with the Immaculate Reception, which was Franco Harris and the Pittsburgh Steelers. But the Immaculate Conception was the fact that Mary's mother and dad managed to get pregnant, but without natural sin. And so she was born superhuman because she didn't have natural sin. And this meant that Mary was a perpetual virgin, both in the spiritual sense and the physical sense. And this was an issued statement by the Pope because they had so much riding on the authority that they had accumulated in this mixture of religion and state that existed for almost a thousand years. Emperors could be nominated or, or, or elected by the popes as Holy Roman emperors, meaning that they were the official head of state for large places like Europe because the pope said so. And so the pope was the highest authority, but they were appointing a secular authority to govern. And this was all falling apart because of the Reformation. And as it's falling apart, the church is trying to reconfigure its authority structure because they still need to have authority over not only temporal matters, but eternal matters. And the biggest thing that you could do to a person of faith in the old order of the, the, the church, that is the, the, what we would call a small C Catholic church. The biggest threat you could offer someone is excommunication. Meaning, I have the power to condemn you to hell so that you can't die and go to heaven. And so again, they've usurped the entire message of the gospel and claimed authority that is superseding or supersedes the authority of Christ on the cross. When he says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. When he says it is finished, it means it's finished. And this is, this is like the, the Bible has become irrelevant at this point. So we go into the age of enlightenment where people have access to knowledge and they're asking questions the church can't answer because even the church is pretty ignorant about these things because they've been running on tradition more than scripture. And one of the reasons they really, really, really wanted to get Martin Luther was because he was putting the Bible in people's hands in their own native language, which meant that they could know more than the priest did mm. because priests weren't encouraged to read the Bible. They were encouraged to read letters from Rome. <laughs> you know? And Roman 
authorities were often corrupt in those days. And there are lots of intrigues and amazing stories. There was a time in those days when there were three popes at one time. And one pope was in France and another one was somewhere in that vicinity. And another one was in Rome, you know. Then there was the whole, you know. So I'm just saying, like, like you have to have a good handle on history, especially church history, to understand how certain traditions just got locked in. And they all have one thing in common, ignorance. And more commitment to tradition than truth. Now, that sounds judgmental and critical, but really all I'm trying to say is, is that if you want to believe that Mary is more than the amazing woman we've made her out to be, you got to ask yourself why. You got to be willing to ask that critical thinking question of who came up with that idea? And where did they get that idea from? And the first and most, uh, not the most, uh, not the first, let me rephrase this. The most effective reformer up to his time was Martin Luther. And he was, he was just my kind of guy, man. He just said what he thought. And sometimes he even used dirty words in the process. And he just basically said, they've got some crazy ideas that are not rooted in scripture at all. And I want them to stop promoting those ideas and go back to the Bible. And so he was a reformer. He was wanting to get the church back in line with scripture. And of course, the church's reaction is, is you don't understand. We have more power. We have more world status. We have more wealth. We, we have more to gain by remaining what we are now than by. And, and his answer was, is, yeah, but you're going to gain all of that and end up in hell when you die. And you're going to lead a whole lot of other people to hell. Doesn't that bother you? Well, then they had to come up with justification for what they were doing, if only to convince themselves that they weren't going to hell and that they were in the right. And so there's these layers and layers and layers of culture that are built around self-preservation, wealth preservation, and power preservation. Like, like all of this comes back to the temporal world and the world of the flesh. And, and, and so deep within every religion based on the Bible, there is something real, something authentic, something genuine. And I've known people of that tradition and other traditions that I find interesting who are really faithful and, and honorable people who love the Lord, but there are so many people who mindlessly believe things that they can't validate in any way, shape, or form. And that worries me. I fear for them. I really do. I fear for them. Because I think that if nothing else on Judgment Day, we've had this chat before, on Judgment Day, I think people are all going to have an opportunity to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with Jesus. And there are people who won't know him because he doesn't look like Mary or because he doesn't look like, you know, the, the Jesus from the 1979 movie about Jesus or whatever. Like, like, I'm not trying to be mean and sarcastic. I'm trying to make a point that, that we have been fed a lot of counterfeit Christian culture that's inaccurate, that's wrong, and it's got a fundamental flaw in it that is going to make that currency worthless on Judgment Day. And... I think Mary might be there on Judgment Day weeping bitterly 
over all the people who adored her and thought she was equal to Jesus in our salvation. You know, and then when he says, do you know my son? And they say, well, show him to me and I'll, I'll tell you whether I know him or not. Well, he's standing right in front of you, you know, like, like, you know, so I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I'm saying that there is one thing that the reformers were adamant about that I am adamant about, and that is the authority of scripture. And now we can have a big discussion someday about what makes authority, makes scripture authoritative. But we had that discussion on the week after the Gideons came and I was talking about the Bible. And so, you know, when your Christian religion or your, even your Jewish religion divert too far from the core of scripture, then you're at great risk of being inaccurate in a way that could cost you your soul. I think there's a good question underneath all of that, more of like a critical thinking, introspective type question. So if you're listening, here it is. If you're a Christian, if you claim to be a Christian, how devoted are you to tradition and how devoted are you to God? On that spectrum, like where do you sit, right? If you're more devoted to tradition than God, there's a problem. Be devoted to God. And there's a lot of people who say, well, I don't need church because it's just a bunch of traditions full of people who are fill in the blank, whatever. But the truth of the matter is church is about people being devoted to God and to who God is and doing that in community with one another so that we can hold on to each other and yes. love each other and hold each other accountable right. because we're not perfect. Despite what some Christians may have perpetuated, you know, in in a false sense, we are not perfect. We're human beings. Now, our God is perfect. I will say that. And we strive to be like him. But that's why we need Christian community. Yep. That's why it's so important to attend a God-centered church. Yep. I couldn't say it better than that, Adrian. And... I want people to hear this. You know what? I look out over our congregation every Sunday from the pulpit and I see people who are more devoted to some variation on tradition than they are to Christ and the Bible. They're not bad people. They're lovely people and I know all their names, but I can tell when I'm talking to them and I can tell by their commitment to Christian community, for example, that that they have a certain expectation for what they call church. I'm doing the quote fingers. And as long as that's met, they think they're fine, that they've done church. And I don't know, maybe they are. But what I really like to say to people is, is did you come for religion or a relationship? You know, did you come to church or did you come to worship? And there are plenty of people who show up every week, even here, to church, not worship. There are people who come for religion and not relationship with Christ. And I can't fix that. But I join Adrian in inviting you to think this through. You know, your religion may give you com comfort in some ways, but it's temporary. 
and it doesn't really, you know, you, you have to ask yourself why humankind incessantly makes everything more complicated than it needs to be. Jesus said, I came so that you could have life and have it abundantly. And abundant life doesn't mean gold furniture and poofy hair and all that stuff you see on certain TV stations. And it, it, what it means is, is abundant life means fulfilling life. Like, you know, that you have joy in abundance, that you have, you know, a richness in your life. You know, abundant life is like drinking whole milk instead of 2%. You know, it's like, like that's what it means. And so for people to, to really grasp what Jesus has given us, it's too simple for them. Put your faith in him. Believe that because of him, God wants you to be with, well, because God wants you to be with God all time, all eternity. Through Jesus, he's made that possible. So because of him, you're a member of God's family now. You're a member of God's household. And right now you're dwelling in a foreign land, but he has a place prepared for you. And Jesus has gone to get it ready. And then he's going to come back and get you. That's it. And then somehow early on in religion, and, and it is not by accident that when the Romans got a hold of Christianity, it started getting more complicated. Because man, those people like structure. <laughs> they learned it from the Greeks and they really perfected it. They really, really like structure. And so the Romans turned Christianity into this crazy structured hierarchy and worldly kind of institution and and everything had to have an explanation and and if one explanation satisfied one question it generated 10 other questions that then had to be satisfied and so then we have libraries full of canon law and and so the romanization of christianity was the beginning of something we're still dealing with to this day and it always comes down to this. We make Christianity too complicated and we try to justify ourselves by making Christianity fit our needs and our expectations. And the church hasn't stopped being caught in the middle of all of that because we just went through it with the, um, you know, our church in the last year when we disaffiliated, we, we're basically saying you, you keep trying to reshape the image of God and the Bible to match what you want it to say. You keep trying to make God in your own image. And so someone has to say, no, God is exactly who God appears to be in scripture. And every time we try to divert from that, we're sinning essentially, you know, and thank God we've been forgiven for our sin, but we're still supposed to be conforming ourselves to the image of God or Christ. And those are the choices. It's not complicated. Mm -hmm. You know, religion is complicated. Tradition is how you deal with complicated religion in a way that you can sustain. You just observe the holy days. You just observe the habits. And then you assume that because you're doing religion right, that everything is going to be right with your soul. And it turns out that God doesn't want you to have a relationship with the religion. He wants you to have a relationship with him. 
Yeah. And I love the question that you ask us of, you know, imagining what it might be like when we die. And you say, you know, if you are transmitted to this place that might be the gate of heaven and you see God and he points to Jesus and he says, do you know who this is? Do you know my son? That's an important question to ask yourself in this moment right now. Do you know Jesus? Do you really know who he is? Something to think about. We've talked about who Mary is and how she's a wonderful woman and she was humble and compassionate and willing. And these are great characteristics of what it means to be a Christian. She did a fantastic job of setting that example for us. Um, And in that spirit, let's also ask ourselves, who is Jesus? Can you give adjectives, listener? Can can you tell me who he is? I just had a thought. Yeah. I just got to say this. There's one other story in, in the Bible that she's particularly famous for, and that's the story of a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Yeah. And here's the interesting thing that ought to inform everything we think about Mary. First, she goes to her son and tells him that they need help. Mm-hmm. And he says, okay, mom. And then she tells other people, do what he says. Yes. He... You know, so to say, hey, Jesus, I asked your mom to remind you that I could really use your help with this. I guess that's all right. But remember what she said. Do what he says. Anyway, just random thought that popped into my head. No, that's perfect. Do what he says. Follow up. Know what he says. Yeah. Right? Know what he says and then do what he says. And that is fundamentally Christianity. Yeah. So I think yeah. we'll leave it at that for this week. Well, you, you did a great job today. Thank you. Yeah, you too. All right. We'll see you next time, friends. Bye.